0: Well, the first service was pretty small. And actually, I thought, I thought more people would be here just to get away from the robocalls than that. It's campaign season again, isn't it? You know, when Mark asked me to speak a couple of months ago, uh, shortly thereafter, I, I began feeling as if God would want me to speak on heaven. But I didn't really know why. And then a, a couple weeks ago... I got a call early on Sunday morning and found out that heaven was the new address of our friend Ron Valutis. And then I knew why. God wanted to speak to his people about heaven. Ron's experiencing firsthand this morning what we'll be talking about. So he knows a lot more about it than I do and I can't wait to talk with him about it when I get there too. Uh, Another uh, noted theologian, Huckleberry Finn, had some observations on heaven as well. And in the book by that name by Mark Twain, Huck Finn uh, was under the tutelage of, uh, a, Twain made a caricature of a Christian spinster named Miss Watson who, uh, who felt as if it was her mission to get him squared away and save him from the error of his way and uh, Huck Huck's comment on that and on heaven is, uh, is useful to set the stage for our discussion today he says she went on and told me about the good place that is heaven she said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever so I didn't think much of it I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there and she said not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. Well, some of you uh, may have heard similar comments from friends of yours who who have said flippantly, well, I'd I'd rather be in hell. That's where my friends are going to be anyway. And and I think that betrays uh, a, a fundamental misunderstanding uh, about the realities of heaven and hell, and who goes there and uh, and the criteria for for each place, according to the research by the the Barna group, uh, a majority of Americans still believe in heaven and hell, but uh, there 's a, a wide variety of ideas as to what those places are, who goes there what, o- what occurs there, and many of those ideas are at some variance with what we know from Scripture. Even some Christians, I think, are confused about the realities of, of heaven and, and hell. And it's fair to say, I think, that at the very least, that many of us don't live in the day-to-day anticipation of, of our life in, in heaven, even though I'm convinced that that, that is God's intention for us uh, because he knows that that will shape the way we live our lives here. There's a true story about a a little Colombian girl who received a New Testament in her grade school and began reading it. She read that New Testament until uh, one day her father saw her reading it and stopped her and said he didn't want her reading that because it was full of lies and fantasies. But the, the girl kept on reading it until one day her father came home unexpectedly, saw her reading that New Testament, grabbed it from her and put it in his pocket. Shortly after that, he went off to work. You see, he was a mining engineer in Columbia. A couple hours later, the sirens went off in town in that small community. It seems there had been a cave-in at the mine and, and her father and 30 other men were trapped well below ground it took rescue workers 5 days to reach them and unfortunately all 31 men including this little girl's father were dead curiously rescue workers found the father clutching the new testament between his praying hands when they opened the front cover they they read a note that he had left for his daughter It said to my daughter, keep reading this New Testament. It is true and right and I will see you one day in heaven. Papa. Then they turned to the back page where the father had signed the commitment card after having said the sinner's prayer. But that was not the end of the story. Turning the page, the rescue workers found the signatures of the other 30 men. Nothing like imminent death to sharpen your focus on your eternal destiny, is there? And, and one of the thoughts that I, I had when I read this story for the first time was just how gracious God is. 2 Peter 3.9 says he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You know, the reality, folks, is that most of us live like we're immortal until the matter of our eternal destiny is upon us. And that was not the case in the early church. And, and perhaps that's because they faced on a daily basis the very real threat of persecution and death. I want to share with you uh, some inscriptions from the catacombs. You know, the catacombs in Rome are, in Rome are the graves where, uh, under the, the uh, underground graves where uh, Christian martyrs were buried in, in Rome. And three of the inscriptions that historians found in those Roman catacombs are uh, up on your screen. In Christ, Alexander is not dead but lives. Uh, The second one is, one who lives with God. If you could put those inscriptions up on the screen. Thank you. He was taken up into his eternal home. Another historian writes that, uh, that there were pictures painted on the catacomb walls that portray heaven with beautiful landscapes, children playing, people feasting at banquets. Heaven was very real to those in the early church, and uh, even though they, they faced death every day. But, you know, in, in our lives, I, I think that Satan tries to keep us preoccupied sometimes with the distractions of this life. It's the story out of the parable of the sower, isn't it? That uh, sometimes the, the power of the gospel in our lives is choked out by the, the cares of this life and the busyness of this life. I think Satan tries to do that because he knows if he can keep us focused here, where we are temporarily, he can minimize our impact for the kingdom. He can neutralize us. The Apostle Paul had a different idea. He said in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. C.S. Lewis concurs with Paul. He says, you know, the problem is our focus. One one of the people that I want to meet when I get to heaven and and talk with, if there's coffee there, we're going to have a cup of coffee, is C.S. Lewis. What a mind. What a great saint. He says, the problem is our focus. He writes, most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as heaven means meeting again our friends who have died. One reason for this difficulty is that we've not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Isn't that the truth? Another reason is that when the real want for heaven is present in us, we don't recognize it. Today, I hope to increase the intensity of our focus on on heaven. Do you you suppose that uh, it's God's intention to keep heaven a secret from us? A lot of folks feel that it is, and I think that's incorrect. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, two nine is often cited as the reason why God doesn't want us to know anything about heaven. It says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And so we kind of twist that around to say that, well, we aren't really supposed to know about heaven. That's not the whole context of the verse. If you read the whole context, starting with verse 8 and ending with verse 10, it, it tells just the opposite story. It says, None of the rulers of this age understood it, it being, if you look back a couple of verses, it being God's secret wisdom, it's called, God's secret wisdom, God's secret plan uh, to reconcile us to himself through Christ is what they're talking about. None of the rulers of this age, that is Satan's, Uh, Satan's uh, underlings that rule the world and uh, earthly rulers as well. None of them understood it, God's secret wisdom, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for them, for those who love him. Now listen to this. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. You see, God reveals uh, truth to us about heaven by His Spirit, and one of the ways He do He does that is is through Scripture. That's not the only way. God speaks to us directly as well, and He speaks through us to other other believers as well. But one of the ways He He does that is through the Word of God. Did you know that there are over six hundred references to heaven in the Scripture? If you look at Jesus' parables, He teaches about heaven. One parable right after the other. He talks about, the, this, uh, this parable is about the, the meaning of the kingdom of heaven. And he gives us an insight into what heaven is like. And uh, Paul refers to it repeatedly. Other uh, writers of the other uh, epistles uh, give us a glimpse into, into heaven. They're constantly teaching about heaven. The passage from Isaiah this morning, uh, again, uh, about heaven. John, or Paul, excuse me. Uh, the Lord gave a number of the, the writers a specific insight into heaven. Uh, Paul said he was taken up into the third heaven. Stephen, just before he was stoned, uh, had, a, had a glimpse up into heaven. Saw, he said he saw the Son of God uh, standing at the right hand of God in, uh, in the book of Acts. My, I'm convinced that God wants us to know uh, about, and he wants us to eagerly anticipate heaven and our place in it. So are are heaven and hell real? That's one of the questions that that people ask. Um, And and if they are, well, how do we get there? In in our world, here's a reality check for you. In our world, three people die every second. Three, six, nine, twelve. Every hour... 1, eight, uh, excuse me, 10,800 people die every hour in our world. 259,000 people, over a quarter million people, die every day. Unfortunately, folks, w- we're all afflicted with the terminal disease of mortality. And the death rate is 100%. Whether it's 20 years from now or 40 years from now or whether it's tomorrow morning, we will all die. And and Jesus said said clearly that each of us that dies will spend eternity in one of two places. In uh, Matthew 25, he says, Then the king, that is Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the beginning of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." Notice that for us who are believers, who are in Christ, part of the package, part of our reward in heaven includes both an inheritance and a kingdom that that the Lord is preparing for us right now. And and Jesus was equally clear uh, about the basis on which he will judge every person that has ever lived. He says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not be condemned, and I love this this portion. he says he has crossed over from death to life. he has crossed over from from death to life now now here 's the risk: you hear a sermon like this one on heaven and and so because you 've heard a sermon on heaven, you assume that you 're going there when you die, or you you come to church every Sunday and you hear a sermon every Sunday so you assume that you're going to heaven. Let me be clear. It's not enough to sit in a church and listen to sermons once a week. That will not make you a Christian any more than sitting in your garage will make you a car. Nor will simply knowing historical facts about Jesus Christ or about God. Scripture says that Satan believes in God. That's not the issue. Going to heaven at the end of your life, whether that's two decades from now or whether it's tomorrow morning, requires a transaction between you and, and Jesus Christ, a, a prayer where you acknowledge your sin before God, that you'll never be good enough to get to heaven on your own, where you accept the sacrifice that he made on the cross and his death for you as as uh, as our substitute. And making that decision to put your, Christ, uh, put your trust in Christ in, in that way is where you cross over from, from death to life and you can be assured that, that uh, you'll be in heaven. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit begins a work in your life that begins transforming you from the inside out. 2 Corinthians five seventeen, Paul tells us that, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So if you're a believer in Christ, there's a lot going on in your life. One of the things that, uh, that you can look forward to in addition to that transformation over time in this life is heaven in the next life. And, and folks, when uh, uh, two weeks ago, a little more, in one second when Ron Volutis' heart stopped beating, the next second he was in heaven with his Savior, just like that. So for believers... When do we go to heaven anyway? Well, I'd, I'd like to direct your attention to a, a portion of Scripture here in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Luke 16, 19 through 31. And if you're going to use one of the Bibles in the pew, that's page 61 on the right-hand, uh, right-hand side of the Bible in the New Testament. Mine's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to read out of the uh, New International Version, so it's just a little bit different uh, version than what is in the pew, but substantially the the same. Uh, 1 Timothy, I'm I'm sorry, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, the story of the rich man and and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, when he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony with this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember That in your lifetime you received your good things, Well, Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that you who want to go from here, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, father send Lazarus to my father's house for I have 5 brothers let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment abraham replied they have moses and the prophets let them listen to them no father abraham he said but if someone from the dead goes to them they will repent he said to them if they do not listen to the prophets and to if they do not listen to moses and the prophets they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead now, scholars uh, take two different views of this story. Uh, in some Bibles, it, there's a, a header that says the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Other scholars contend that it's not a parable. That Jesus intended it as a true story. Whichever it is, uh, Jesus certainly intended to give us a, a window uh, into heaven, a, a window into the realities of heaven and hell, that they are real places real people end up there and, and we will wind up in one place or another. Every person that lives and breathes will wind up in, in one place or another. I, I think uh, a couple, well, first of all, in the, in the context of that passage, Jesus was talking uh, right after a confrontation with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the rich religious leaders of the day and uh, they equated riches with righteousness. Their logic was that that uh, that uh, God blessed uh, people if they were righteous, and so if they were rich, that must mean that God blessed them, and so they must be righteous. And so they equated riches with righteousness in a way that uh, that didn't ring true with, with Jesus, obviously. And they neglected their responsibilities to the poor. So uh, God didn't. Jesus was trying to. One of the points that Jesus was trying to make was that God didn't give you those riches to consume uh, on yourself. You had Lazarus outside your gate and you did nothing for him. Uh, a couple of the other things that we can learn from, from this passage, I think, are uh, first of all, that, uh, that the rich man and Lazarus went immediately to heaven. Uh, there, there was uh, to heaven and, and to hell. That there was no waiting period, there was no waiting in, in uh, line three. And, and side, a side note here: Abraham's bosom, that's referred to, or Abraham's side, that's referred to in this passage, that would have been the place that, uh, in that uh, religious, in the Jewish religious tradition, those who died uh, in a right relationship with God, those godly people who died, uh, went to Abraham's bosom. That that's where uh, uh, those who uh, were believers in God and followed God and were godly people uh, were thought to go. And uh, and hell, of course, was where those who whose heart was not right with God went. But after uh, Jesus died, there was a, a transition. After Jesus died, uh, you notice that uh, the thief on the cross, he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, that thief did not go to Abraham's bosom. And the dead that died in Christ after his death went to be with Christ in paradise paradise or or in heaven. So uh, two weeks ago uh, when Ron Valuta's heart stopped uh, in one second, uh, the next second he was with Jesus in in heaven. Notice also that the rich man and Lazarus in this story were both fully conscious and they remembered each other. They recognized each other. Uh, No extended time in uh, some kind of cosmic holding pattern. Uh, they recognized each other, and in, in the, for the purposes of this story, uh, they could speak to each other. Now, we don't know, and I don't think we should speculate from this story uh, that uh, everyone in heaven can see everything that's happening on earth and that people between heaven and hell could communicate. I don't, I don't know that that's the point of Jesus' story. I, I think that uh, we, we can learn from this that that uh, that people recognize each other in, in one place, uh, or the other, they cause a, a lot of an, a number of scholars to conclude that, that we 'll be given enhanced capabilities in heaven that uh, will allow us not only to recognize each other but recognize others uh, in heaven that we don 't have never met. You notice that the rich man in, in this story recognized Abraham even though he never met him, and in, uh, in the passage uh, with regard to the transfiguration in Luke nine. Uh, remember when Abraham and Elijah joined Christ on the, on the mountain, uh, they were all radiant in light. Peter, James, and John were there. Uh, Peter recognized Abraham and Elijah even though he never met them. And some conclude from that that we will have those kinds of capabilities in, in heaven that we will recognize uh, C.S. Lewis even though I've never met the man, that we'll be able to recognize uh, Abraham and converse with him. and and other heroes of the faith that we've always wanted to talk with. Finally, uh, from this passage, note that there are no second chances. That we make decisions in this life that affect our eternal destiny. And everybody needs to be crystal clear about that. Heaven and and hell are, are forever. So where is heaven anyway? Well, in a general sense, heaven is where God rules, where the angels who are loyal to God uh, live with him, and where those saints who have gone on before us, those Christians who have died in Christ and have gone on before us, where they live as well. As far as the, the actual location, you, you can't map quest it from here. It's not that kind of place. But the Apostle Paul makes a reference to it in uh, Second Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12:2 is being caught up in uh, being caught up to the third heaven. It is second Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12:2 being caught up to the third heaven. And where is the third heaven? Well, uh, the general understanding has been that the, the first heaven was the sky that we see. The second heaven is what we would refer to as outer space. The third heaven is above that, and that is where God lives. And that's where uh, also that he rules from and uh, sends the angels out to minister, as Scripture tells us. Now, uh, here's something that we don't have time to explore today, but I, I just want to raise the issue, and that is that uh, many scholars, including some that, uh, that I used as a reference for this message, uh, Dr. Randy Alcorn who wrote the book Heaven, for example. I've included a reference on your outline to that. Um, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who we use his uh, materials here, um, R.C. Sproul, for example, uh, that caliber of uh, theologians uh, believe that uh, God, yeah, that, uh, that the heaven we go to now is where God is. Where God is is heaven, by definition. But that uh, God's ultimate plan, and Mark will teach more about this in Revelation as we go forward, is that heaven will be restored on earth and God will come to live on earth, in a, in a re- on a restored earth, that is a renovated earth. It says in Peter that, that uh, there will be tremendous destruction on earth and that it will be laid bare. But uh, if you think about it, redemption is not just for, uh, God doesn't intend redemption just for us, but all of creation will be redeemed because of what Christ has done. And that's, that's coming ultimately. So ultimately heaven, um, the, the heaven that we go to now at death, may be what they're calling an, an intermediate heaven. It's where God is. We'll be with Christ. But there may be a a heaven on earth at some point in time after the thousand-year reign, after the millennium that Mark will talk about later in, in Revelation. Where will we live in heaven anyway? Well, good question. Jesus spoke specifically about our place in heaven, didn't he? He said in John 14, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now, the imagery that Jesus used there would have been very familiar to the people of his day. In that day, a father's house many times would contain many apartments for sons and daughters and uh, and other relatives. And, and so in this case, what Jesus is saying is not necessarily that there'll be apartments, but that, uh, that the, the Father and Jesus himself is preparing a specific place for us to live. We don't know what it will look like exactly, but we know that uh, God being who he is, that it will be exciting beyond our wildest imagination and that it, that it will uh, be custom designed for each of us by a master carpenter, right? Okay. What will we look like? Well, uh, some believe that we'll um, we we have this idea that we'll be uh, disembodied spirits uh, floating around uh, from place to place in heaven. I don't think that's the case. I, I think, based on the scriptural evidence and and um, and and other information, that uh, we'll have a physical presence in heaven and one that will look very similar to what we have now. I don't know yet whether it will be our resurrected body uh, that will happen at the resurrection when our, our bodies are, uh, are made incorruptible and, and imperishable, as uh, St. Paul says. Uh, but we will have a, a physical presence in heaven. And I, I think it, it will look, uh, it will be recognizable to those people who, who knew us here. Um, If you think about it, I mentioned the transfiguration in Luke 9 not long ago, uh, just a few minutes ago, Uh, Abraham, Elijah, uh, they had an obvious physical presence. When Stephen looked up into heaven just before he was stoned, there was an obvious physical presence there that he saw standing at the the right hand of God. Uh, When Jesus came back after his uh, resurrection, he had a physical presence that was very recognizable, to his disciples. And, and on that point, uh, in Luke 24, 36 through 43, uh, Luke tells us that the disciples were gathered together in a room. They were in secret. They were, they were afraid because the Jews were going to kill them. So they were locked themselves in a, in a room when suddenly Jesus appeared among them in his resurrection body after his, uh, after his death and resurrection. He says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. What a shocker. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. This is in his resurrected body. So we can learn some things about what uh, a resurrected body might be like. What what might our, our body be like uh, in the next life? I think we can make some deductions about that. It's educated... Uh, speculation It's uh, using our imagination based on what we see in Scripture. But uh, first of all, I, I think we can at least say that uh, we, we notice that Jesus was immediately recognizable to his disciples as someone they knew. Now, I think there's scriptural support for the fact that when we get to heaven, we will still have a physical presence that will be immediately recognizable to the, uh, the people that we knew and we will recognize our loved ones in the same way. Jesus had a physical presence, too. Uh, he was able to be touched, he, and he invited them to touch. He said, see, I'm, I'm flesh and bones. He had a body, uh, even in his resurrected state. He bore identifying marks from his earthly life, that is, scars, that, that he invited them to touch. He said, see, it's, it's me. Uh, yeah. You don't believe it, but it's me. We're, we just can't get our minds around the fact that somebody shows up after they're supposed to be dead, and the disciples were no different. Finally, he, he was able to eat food that was offered to him. He said, if, if you don't believe me yet, watch this. And he ate some fish that, that they gave him. Um, finally, uh, he was able to materialize and dematerialize at will. What I mean by that is he was able to appear and disappear. He was apparently able to transport himself over great distances instantaneously, just like that, perhaps in another dimension. That's one of the things that God will teach us. Now, I'm not suggesting, I don't know if we will have those same capabilities in heaven or not, but it's fun to think about, isn't it? If if perhaps God would give us that as part of our resurrected capability. We know that our bodies will be uh, powerful, and our minds will be uh, many times uh, more agile and, uh, and capable than they are now yeah, in, our, in our new bodies, in our, in our new minds. We know that we'll be ageless and powerful. I, I think that one author I read uh, says that if we uh, had an opportunity to see Adam and Eve in their original state, we, we would be in awe of what they look like, what God had created as human beings. And, and they would, in turn, feel sorry for us when they, when they looked at us uh, compared to what God's original intention was because of the effects of, of uh, sin and the aging process and, and all the rest of it that, that goes with the deterioration of the creation. So I don't know whether we're going to be able to say, uh, beam me up or, or not, but, uh, but it's certainly a possibility. There is a striking account of... Uh, of what it may be like in heaven from a Baptist pastor named Don Piper. How many of you have read 90 Minutes in Heaven? A fair fair number of you. I I found that uh, to be a fascinating book. And obviously, any book read by a human being does not have the the weight of Scripture. Uh, But I would uh, caution you, uh, before you dismiss somebody's uh, account like uh, Piper's account, Um, that God has revealed, God has uh, graciously given visions of heaven to a number of people down through history in scripture that we know of and and then also uh, church fathers and uh, Christians down through the centuries from time to time have been granted a, a glimpse of heaven and have been able to talk about it. I think that Piper may be one of those people. He's a Baptist pastor, still is, uh, alive as a Baptist pastor, he was on his way home from a pastors' conference in Texas in 1989, January of 1989, and uh, his Ford Escort was involved in a in an accident on a narrow bridge on a rainy night in uh, Huntsville, Texas, and actually uh, the car was literally run over head-on by an eighteen-wheeler, was was crushed, and uh, his his body was. Uh, devastated uh, in the process. He was uh, pronounced dead at the scene by EMTs. And uh, in fact, the scene was so grisly, uh, one arm was almost severed, one leg was almost severed, and and so on. Uh, The scene was so grisly that the troopers covered up the car with a tarp uh, uh, so that uh, people couldn't stare at the, the grisly scene. Uh, a short time later, another Baptist pastor named Dick Onorecker and his wife, Anita, were also en route down Highway 19 near Huntsville in Texas. Uh, traffic was stopped, and, and they stopped. To, Dick felt strongly that he should get out and uh, see what he could do. So they both went forward, walked up the line of cars to see if there was anything that they could do. And, and Dick came to the car with a tarp over it. He said to the, the officer there, uh, uh, and he just felt this overwhelming, um, compelling uh, force that, that he should pray for the man in that car. And the trooper said, Well, sir, you don't understand that that man's been dead for some time now. And uh, Dick said, You know, I, I'm just feeling that God wants me to pray for this person. And so finally the uh, trooper led him by and and uh, Dick climbed in the trunk of that car, crawled under the tarp, put his hand on the dead man's shoulder and started to pray. He said he prayed more. He later re- recounted that Dick Onorecker, or this, this other pastor, who had been at the same conference, by the way, but didn't realize uh, who was in that accident. He says he prayed more fervently and with more power than, than he ever had before in his life because he felt like God wanted him to be there. So he he prayed and and he wept and he sang hymns until finally he was singing the hymn uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And he said the dead man began singing with him. He leaped out of the car, (laughs) startled, and, and ran back to the EMTs and said, Quick, you've got to come over here and check this man's pulse. He's alive, he's alive. They argued with him. They said, No, we... We checked him. He was dead. There's no question. Finally, he wrestled one of them over there to the car. They checked his pulse. They said, he's alive. He's alive. And they immediately mobilized the rest of the emergency crews. They had to cut him out of the car with the jaws of life, transport him to the hospital. And the rest of the story, uh, much of the book is about his recovery and why he feels God brought him back. But he has some striking things to say about where he was during those 90 minutes and, and uh, Don Piper says that the, the title of the book uh, during those 90 minutes he experienced heaven and I, I realize that uh, we are conditioned as C.S. Lewis said in the quote earlier we are conditioned to think on a natural level and to suspect anything supernatural well I, that doesn't always serve us well sometimes uh, God provides us with a glimpse uh, of the supernatural in order to encourage us. I think this may be one of those times. I'm going to share some observations from four observations from uh, Piper's book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, and uh, you can read more if, if uh, God leads you to do that. He said that when he, he said, first of all, uh, he remembered the accident occurring, the impact occurring, a bright light, and then suddenly the next second he said he was in heaven after the accident immediately met by a large group of people who were there to joyously welcome him he immediately recognized that all of them had died at some point during his life and that he knew them all they had been friends and and loved ones that had died at some point during during his life previously and And one of the things I always wondered about folks was, what age will we be in heaven? You know, I I, I don't think we get to choose. But uh, he said, interestingly, his observation was that everybody he met was about the age at which he remembered them. In other words, he lost a a young Christian friend in, in high school. That person seemed to be about the age he remembered him. In high school, others, like his grandfather, uh, approached him and embraced him uh, immediately. He said his, his grandfather appeared to be about the same age uh, as he was when when uh, he had his heart attack and, and died. but he said interestingly enough that uh, all of them were uh, didn't bear any of the the uh, signs uh, that we would normally associate with aging that uh, when they had died, for example, his grandfather was feeble and frail and uh, a shrunken uh, person from what he had been younger. And he said the way his grandfather was now when he embraced him was the robust, strong grandfather that he remembered from when Don was a boy. The same thing with a a great-grandmother who had been hunched over from osteoporosis, had lost her teeth, and and so on. He said she was standing straight and tall as she embraced him, smiled, with a brilliant uh, smile with, with uh, teeth uh, that she hadn't had before. So the point is that uh, the observation he had was that these folks were uh, strong, fit, and, and beautiful. Everyone was incredibly joyful and uh, hugged him as they welcomed him, smiling and shouting and, and praising God. The second thing, the second observation I want to share with you the first is the continuity of human relationships that he recognized them, they recognized him. He also said, interestingly, that he thought that had he met someone that uh, he had heard about but didn't know, Abraham or something, he, he had the sense that he would have recognized that person, although he didn't have the opportunity to do that. The second observation he had was the overwhelming sense of love, peace, happiness, acceptance, and joy. He said he felt enveloped by an overwhelming love that emanated from the, the loved ones and friends that came out to meet him. He said he, first, he understood for the first time what the, the phrase in Scripture, perfect love, means because he felt like he was just immersed in that as, as he met these loved ones. And he, he wrote that he also experienced a profound sense of happiness, a, a deep joy, unlike anything he had ever felt before on earth. There was a peace in a sense that he was loved and accepted unconditionally. There was a complete absence of any of the negative emotions of remorse or sadness or pain or uh, the, fi- the feeling that, um, of guilt or uh, sadness or sorrow or uh, regret. No negative emotions at at all. Just completely overwhelmed with the the, uh, sense of uh, love and acceptance. The the third observation he had was amazing light and colors. Don't you always wonder what heaven looks like? Uh, This morning in the passage that Michael uh, read to us from Isaiah 6, uh, there's a glimpse into what heaven will look like. If you you go home uh, for your homework this afternoon, if you read Revelation 21 and 22, there's a glimpse into what heaven looks like and, and you'll see some of the same things I'm explaining to you here. Piper describes the area where he arrived in heaven and was met by his loved ones as being just outside the beautiful, luminescent gate of what appeared to be a city. And that city radiated light from within. He, he, he said as, as they moved, as the group moved closer to that gate, that he thought light couldn't get any brighter, but it just kept getting brighter and brighter. And that light was radiating from within he he said he had a sense that that light came from God himself, who was in that city, but uh, he he couldn 't uh, couldn 't see that far he He said that uh, he saw colors and hues that were indescribable, colors he had never seen before that were so vivid and and hues that were so amazing that uh, he found it difficult to put those into words and then the last observation was. The indescribable beauty of the music he he said that he heard hundreds of worship songs uh, being sung all at once uh, together, and that uh, some of them he knew from this life curiously, he said there weren 't any songs of sadness or, or any negative songs. The old rugged cross, for example, there, there was no song about even about christ 's death everything was. Uh, looking forward and worshiping God. Some he knew, some songs he didn't know, all sung at the same time, uh, hundreds of songs together, and yet he was able to distinguish the words in each one, and able to distinguish the melody of each one, and they blended together in a perfect harmony. That would only be possible in heaven. So that's just a a brief account. if, uh, If you want to read the the rest of of his observations, I'd encourage you to, to pick up that book. What I felt in my spirit after I read that was it just affirmed uh, what the Holy Spirit had had uh, communicated to my spirit from Scripture uh, about what, what heaven might be like. And I think that's why Piper thinks that he came back. Now, uh, I should say, I should not leave you hanging. He, he said that ju- just as he approached that gate and, and appeared to... It appeared as if they were going to go through that gate that uh, suddenly he was back. And uh, he was on a, on a gurney and they were treating him and so on. And he thinks, and he's convinced that Dick Onorecker's prayer uh, brought him back. Here's an interesting sidelight I, I didn't share with the, the first uh, service this morning. But he, he said uh, during that time he was in the car, he, he uh, vividly remembers Dick Onorecker. Uh, holding his hand uh, to to comfort and encourage him and he mentioned that during one of the times he spoke about it at Dick's church uh, after Dick had had died himself and and gone on to heaven. Dick's wife uh, corrected him afterwards and said, uh, Don, you couldn't, Don could, or uh, Dick couldn't have held your hand. It wasn't possible because of the way your limbs were arranged in the car. He was reaching in from the back. He put his hand on your shoulder but he couldn't, he could never have held your. He could never have held your hand, and uh, and Don said, "Well, who was it then?" And and Anita said, "I think you know. And that God was there holding his hand through that to comfort and and encourage him." So what will we do in heaven? Well, we're going to be learning from God and and others. <clears throat> A passage in Ephesians two six and seven. Paul says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God has a lot he wants to show us. We just see the little corner of his plan right now for us and what he intends for us in the ages to come. We don't have a good handle on that yet. He has a lot to teach us. We say, well, you know that's eternity. How can we learn for an eternity? I'll tell you what. We've got an infinite God. It's going to take him. An, it's going to take us an infinite amount of time to to really uh, get to know him. I, I think that uh, God's going to give us an increased capability for learning and a heightened excitement. I, I think it's going to be an exciting process of discovery. You see, <clears throat> some folks think mistakenly. I believe that we're going to be omniscient, that is what we're going to be all knowing in heaven. I don't think that's the case. I think I think Scripture is clear that we're going to be learning in heaven. And we're going to know a great deal more than we know right now, certainly. And, and we're going to see everything, all of creation and God's plan from His eternal perspective. So we'll know a lot more, but we won't know everything. But we will be learning from God. We'll be learning from the Savior Himself. And we'll be learning from each other while we're up there. Those of us who have those who have gone on before us. In addition to learning, I I think we're going to be exercising responsibilities in heaven. I think that we will have work to do, not work like you and I sometimes drag ourselves into the office for every day, but work that we will be excited about, work that fits us, uh, uh, eternal responsibilities that God gives us that we, we will work at and be able to accomplish because we have so much more capability that, that we, than we do now. And, and Jesus alluded to that, actually, in the, in the parable of the talents. He said in uh, Matthew 25, 21, uh, you remember the parable of the talents? The uh, master uh, comes to three of his servants and, and says, I'm going away for a while. I'm going to give you five give you five talents, you two talents, you one talent. I want you to work hard, invest those talents. A talent was uh, a measure of money in those days. Invest those talents and when I return, uh, you'll give me an account of how you've done. So he, he, when he returns from his journey and comes back to them, one, one invested and, and uh, earned five more talents. So that, that person had, had ten. Uh, the other invested the two and had two more. Uh, the third one, I didn't do anything. Buried the talent in a hole and was able to hand it back to the master. He wasn't pleased about that. But what he said in Matthew twenty-five twenty-one to his uh, the servants who were successful and who worked hard and returned and gave him a return on his investment was this: the master replied, "Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness." The message to us is that. He held his servants that Jesus intends to hold his servants accountable for what God has given us to invest. God has given us all something in terms of uh, capabilities and resources and a calling uh, that he's given us to carry out. And he's going to ask us to be faithful about that. We're not just supposed to be waiting idly for the bus to heaven to show up. We're supposed to be actively engaged in bringing in the kingdom in the role that God has called us to do. And, and so uh, the message is how we live now matters to God. Finishing well matters to God. There, coasting should not be in our, our vocabulary as believers. The third thing we're going to be doing is, is ruling with Christ. You say, well, I never really thought of myself as management material. Well, God will give you the capabilities you need to do what you're supposed to do. In 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, uh, Paul comments on this. What he's doing is taking the Corinthians to task. He says that, uh, um, you know, you've got disputes between yourselves that you're not resolving. You're going to rule angels. You're going to judge the world. Why are you having trouble with this? Get used to it. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? So you see, some of us will be in positions of responsibility and in positions of ruling and directing. And perhaps um, God will give us uh, jobs to do that will involve in in another uh, gospel. The uh, master came back and he gave them they were, uh, they were competent and had done well in overseeing five cities, he gave them five more. Maybe you and I will be overseeing cities or other solar systems. Who knows? But God will have responsibility for us that, that will suit us. And the point, folks, is that the responsibilities and the rewards that we have in heaven are, are linked to how well we have, uh, we have carried out our calling that God has for us here. In in Jude, too, there is another passage, Jude 1, 14, 15, where Jude says, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they've done. Who do you think those holy ones are? That's that's you and me. We're going to build and renew relationships. Uh, One of the things that we look for forward to most, isn't it, is uh, renewing relationships with folks we've lost uh, that have gone on before us. And that was true in, this, in the 8th century as well. In in 710 A.D., there was a quote from a, a um, someone, a church leader named the Venerable Bade. He says, a, "...a great multitude of dear ones there, that is in heaven, is expecting us. A vast and mighty crowd of parents, brothers, and children." secure now of their own safety, anxious yet for our salvation, long that we may come to their right and embrace them, to that joy which will be common to us and to them, to that pleasure expected by our fellow servants as well as ourselves, to that full and perpetual felicity. I had to look that up. It means great happiness and bliss. If it be a pleasure to go to them, to go them, let us eagerly and covetously hasten on our way, that we may soon be with them and soon be with Christ. We, we have a lot of catching up to do there, folks, not only with loved ones who have gone on before, but also with David and uh, Abraham and Mary and Martha and Paul the Apostle and Priscilla and Aquila and Luther and Calvin and uh, Ron Valutis and others that we love and, and we miss. And most importantly, with our Lord and Savior, to sit down with the Savior and have him explain to us God's eternal plan. Have him tell us how much he loves us. Uh, what, what a moment that will be. I also think we're going to be feasting and enjoying ourselves in heaven, and that comes right from Jesus himself. He says in uh, Matthew eight eleven, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Did you ever think about the fact that we might be eating in heaven? Think about how how great food will taste in heaven. And, and what heavenly food would taste like. Uh, Revelation speaks of the tree of life bearing edible fruit that apparently will be uh, available to us. We're going to be worshiping and praising God. I think that's the one thing that we know intuitively about heaven. Uh, it says in Revelation 15:4 Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come, nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Uh, Worship will be continuous in heaven. And and, uh, incidentally, one of the things that Piper mentioned was he said he was not a, a good singer in his life on earth, but he felt that had he had the opportunity to sing in heaven, his voice would have been beautiful for the first time. Perhaps some of those that suffer from that as well will will uh, be able to make more than a joyful noise in heaven. Here's one for you. Will, will there be animals in heaven? Uh, yes, there will be, except for cats. <laughs> There's no redemption for cats. They can't be redeemed. They were just too bad while they were here. I'm just kidding. you cat. I'm just kidding, you cat lovers. A young lady came up to me uh, after the first service and said, My cat just died six months ago. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry. No, she, she really wasn't complaining. She knew I was just kidding, but uh, obviously she, she wanted to know. That young woman wanted to know, well, I see my cat again. I don't know. I don't know about that. But I think that animals will be very different in heaven, and I think that our relationship may be very different in heaven. Uh, have you ever thought about that, animals uh, in heaven? Well, Scripture speaks of it. And in in fact, Revelation 19 speaks of Christ riding on a white horse. And what's more, thousands upon thousands of us uh, who make up the armies of heaven also riding on white horses. You know, that that section in Revelation 19 speaks of uh, riding on white horses and being clothed in white. Now, angels uh, aren't spoken of as riding horses and being clothed in white. Uh, The only conclusion we can come to is that those thousands and thousands and thousands of people are you and me, clothed in white, riding on white horses uh, at the end of time, following our leader into battle. Where do all those horses come from? Well, they're in heaven. They have to be. That's what Scripture says. Also, Isaiah 65, there's a, a prophetic description of the new heaven and the new earth. And it speaks of flocks and herds grazing together and the wolf and the lamb feeding together, which never happens now, Right? It says, Isaiah sixty-five twenty-five: The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Do you suppose that you'll be able to pet grizzly bears in heaven? And lions. It says another passage in... Uh, says that uh, the children, uh, the child will be able to reach into the hole of the viper without being harmed. It sounds as if, and did you notice the passage here about the section here about the lion eating straw? Have you ever thought about the fact that if there's no death in heaven, then animals can't really be predators, can they? They can't kill each other for food like they do now. Do you suppose that in the Garden of Eden that all the animals, lions and wolves included, were vegetarians I don't know but it, it, uh, it's an interesting question isn't it um, what Isaiah is talking about here is a description of the new heaven and the new earth read chapter 65 and there's a lot more there about what it uh, what it may look like but keep it in the think about it in the context of the fact that God is redeeming the whole creation God hasn't abandoned creation he's not going to wad it up and throw it away it, it was his work uh, and and in, uh, in the epistle of Peter, we see that, that there's going to be tremendous devastation. And in one section it says, the earth will be laid bare, is one translation. It doesn't say destroyed. A lot of times we think it's all going to burn up. Well, I think there's going to be fire, according to Scripture. But it, it may be that God is going to renovate the creation. And, and he speaks of a new heaven and a new earth and a and, uh, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And uh, so some scholars would say that uh, that new heaven after the millennium will be on earth and that everything will be perfect and renewed just as we will be renewed. But Mark will get into more of that. Uh, let's tell Mark we want him to explain all of that in, uh, later in Revelation. Living with heaven in mind. C.S. Lewis says, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we've ever desired anything else. The writer of Hebrews talks about the same thing when he when he describes the, the heroes of the faith. And, and this is part of seeing with the eyes of faith, folks. In in Hebrews eleven, thirteen through sixteen, he says, All these people, that is, those who were trusting God, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance and they admitted that they were aliens. Another translation uses the word pilgrims. They admitted that they were pilgrims and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for another, they are looking for a country of their own. If they've been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God He's prepared a, a city for them. Question for you folks. Do you desire heaven over anything the world has to offer? Do you think about this uh, world as one you're just passing through? Are you, uh, do you think of yourself as an alien and a pilgrim and a stranger? Or are you holding to it so tightly that God's going to have to pry your fingers loose in order to give you something better in heaven? God wants us to focus and and eagerly anticipate heaven. But I think sometimes the intensity of our desire for heaven is inversely proportional to the level of our comfort. In other words, the more distractions and toys and preoccupations we have in this world, the harder it is for us to focus on the next life because we want to cling to what we know. That's not so true of our friends in uh, Zambia from some of the reports I get. Uh, some of the Christian brothers and sisters there that, uh, that our team has just ministered to, uh, uh, some of them are, are in abject poverty. They have nothing, but their desire for heaven is intense. And their worship is joyful, and their love for the Lord is strong. Let's pray that, uh, that God will give us that focus on heaven, that He'll give us a glimpse of, of what He has planned for us, and that uh, we'll live our lives in such a way that, uh, that we're looking forward to, to everything that He has for us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank You for uh, a glimpse into heaven. We thank You for what You've prepared for us. We don't always understand why, Lord, Your great grace and Your great faithfulness, uh, why You love us so much more than we can comprehend. We don't get that all the time, Lord, but we thank you for it. And and we ask that you, you work in our lives, in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Allow us to see with the eyes of faith and allow us to see ourselves as pilgr- pilgrims and strangers here and, and uh, that heaven is our real home. Impress uh, that on our hearts this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.